what do you do when your very capable father announces, I've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's? And the response is rather poetic. Stay tuned, you might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. This is Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And this is a a slightly different take on our show in that... We tend to look at caregiving as a job, a very analytic job. And this approach that we're going to be talking about with my guest, Peter Meck, is is taking more of the creative brain and saying, how do we as, as human beings that are dealing with the, the challenges of taking care of a parent from a, I'll say, a nonlinear perspective? because we're trained so much to be in business. It's like from start to end was the goal. And our goal might be a little different from everybody, but um, I'm going to just jump in and introduce Peter Mech and we'll go from there. So Peter is a writer, a photographer, a teacher, and a speaker. He is a playwright. His plays and dance scenarios have included Palabalus, Mobix dance theaters, and he, that have been produced in New York City, Europe, and Africa. He served as a U.S. State Department cultural specialist in Tanzania and Morocco. I've never been to any of those places. (laughs) (laughs) However, he has also created training and motivational programs for corporations worldwide. He's a photographer as well. Talk about uber creative. And has private collections in in international galleries as well. He has a BA in English from Dartmouth College, my dad's alma mater, which is one of the reasons why we connected. <laughs> and his father's a Dartmouth fellow too. And he has an MFA in playwriting from Brandeis University. And he's been featured on numerous TED Talks and on international mental health summits, including those in Delhi and in Vallada, Malta, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Very happy to be here. I, you know, I am so excited to be doing this with you because your take on the world and how you look at the world of dementia and Alzheimer's and caring for a parent is, as I said early on, it's a little different, I think, than the rest of us who have have done this. And I'd like to just dive into how you approached just hearing the diagnosis of your dad having having Alzheimer's and, and what you did to sort of either hunker down or back away and say, good luck, Charlie, <laughs> or good luck, William, your dad. <laughs> well, going to the point at which he did announce his diagnosis, it came completely out of the blue. Uh, he was living in Arizona. I was living in the Boston, Massachusetts area. My sister's both in California. So we hadn't seen him for a number of weeks, perhaps even months. So we hadn't noticed what was progressing, which others uh, near where he was living had noticed and had suggested he get himself tested, which he did and then called his children 
my two sisters and myself and and announced what he had heard what his diagnosis was it was so out of the blue i didn't have time to uh, collect myself really and react i just i probably just said uh-huh yeah, <laughs> and uh, right. and we talked about other things after that uh, he was very careful and very insistent that we not see this as a death knell or a curtain uh, curtains down kind of event. He said this will be a slow process. Um, for a long time, we'll be just like we always were. And then when things change, they will change gradually and I'll be fine. So his prime concern was us, really. Mm -hmm. um, should I ever be in that position? I'm not sure that I would have the fortitude <laughs> to to be as concerned with others uh, to a greater degree even than I am uh, would be to myself. So I I very much congratulate him for that. I'm very proud of him for that. And indeed, the process itself of his uh, the downward slope. Uh, into the latter stages of uh, Alzheimer's was fairly slow for a number of years and then accelerated toward the end uh, until he finally did die. You mentioned, uh, you cited the word uh, linear uh, right. before and how I might be approaching this then uh, and ever since. Um, only one, it is only one of the things that happens when one has dementia or Alzheimer's is a memory loss, a progressive memory loss, which starts with the inability to remember what has happened very recently. And yet one's memory of long ago events, for example, my father's college experience, uh, locks in place for, and stays that way for a much longer time. So this idea of linearity um, was very important to me because as a writer, I'm always thinking backward, I'm thinking forward, and I'm thinking in the present, uh, apropos of what I'm creating to combine the past and the present to create something that lives in the in the present. Now, so, yeah, so let, me ask, let, me, let me ask you on that. So yeah. your, your dad called you and your and your siblings and said i've been i've got this diagnosis and it sounds like he was just very i don't say nonplussed about it but just very matter of fact in sharing this but i i'm curious i mean to me if if i heard that from my mom my mom had dementia um it was never officially diagnosed like your dad had from Alzheimer's, <clears throat> but um, we saw the slow progression, which was different than saying we're at the beginning and now facing the end. So, I mean, already from the beginning of this conversation with your dad, you knew that there was where the path was going. So it's almost like the conclusion of the story was written before it happened. But even even still, how, do you, do you think your other siblings, your your sisters, took this the same way, or do you think well, it was we different? were two thousand miles distant from each other, so I don't know how they reacted immediately. We all got together pretty soon and went to visit our dad in Arizona. Um, but as far as the initial reaction goes, and you were saying we knew where it was going, we sure. more or less knew where it was going. 
Um, it didn't occur to me. I hadn't researched it. I didn't know that it was inevitably a terminal condition, which it, of course, turns out to be. It, it is right. uh, the routes toward the terminus are, are various. And in my father's case, it was simply that he could not swallow at the end and, and therefore literally just expired. Um, so, as I say, I didn't know the specific end. Had I known that, I might have been a little more <laughs> consternated, to say the least. Right. Um, but I think the, the significant thing we were all thinking of, and I, I speak for myself, is the route we would all be taking toward that end and what that would be like, how we would uh, deal with each other, deal with our father, how he would deal with us, knowing the path that he was that he was now on and what we could make of that, since indeed we had years ahead of us uh, on this path. Or you hope you had years. You just, well, we I hope, mean, yeah. he said I mean, it was some, slow, but things yeah, change, right? In some cases, it's faster than in other cases. In our case, I don't have my calendar. Uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly. It was about 12 years That's between yeah. the announcement and the eventual demise. And I must say, we did fine. Uh, I'm very happy to say, if one can be happy in a situation like this, that we all did fine. My sister in Los Angeles was the closest to him geographically, so she uh, would either every weekend or every other weekend drive the whatever it is, 400 miles each way to, um, to Phoenix to see him and care for him. And then she would go back and do the work week in Los Angeles, and I came out more infrequently than that. And my sister in San Francisco uh, came out in a number of times in between the two of the rest of us. Um, so, are they also creative? I mean, do they also have a creative background themselves, or? Yeah, definitely. Um, Alexandra, my, the younger of my two sisters, who lives in Los Angeles, uh, actually illustrates my book of poetry that uh, has just ah. been published called Aperture, over the years, she is the most instinctive, um, unschooled, but purely instinctive, genius-level uh, drawer, uh, sketcher with pencil and pen. She would, um, in every letter she would write to us from wherever she was, at the bottom of the letters, there would be two or three or four little caricatures. Huh. They were the most brilliant, I I'm talking Picasso level, uh, brilliant. I've seen them. They're beautiful. <laughs> Just deft as could be with uh, a couple of deft, quick lines, she would suggest an entire person's personality. Wow. So she, by profession, is not an artist. She has been a professor of English in Los Angeles, and that has been her main career. But she's always drawing on the side. She's a wonderful pianist. So, um, yes, uh, very creative. My other sister in, in, in uh, San Francisco, in age between Sandy and myself, uh, went to Parsons School of Design in New York City and um, has been an interior designer and a very creative colorist with paint for people's interior spaces. And she, knew, uh, she lives in San Francisco with her husband, who is Japanese, who is also a brilliant designer. So there's a lot of brilliant design in, in the family, so we could share our experiences in, in, in a common ground of creativity, uh, each of us approaching it in, in somewhat of a different way, right. but all being bound by the, the family tie. I think that's rather interesting because 
I'm not sure whether it somebody who has a creative bent or talent approaches the problems or the challenges of caring for somebody a little differently than those that that don't. Myself, I spent three years at art school, so it's it's not a talent I use today professionally, although I do in different ways. Yet we talked about the process of or, or earlier about mourning even before we get there. And that's that's something it sounds like you sort of took into into perspective, all of you to some extent, that you know, we've got this problem, how will we deal with it? Not so much what we're dealing with the here and the now, but the whole the whole picture of it, as you would even a piece of artwork, right? Because you're not looking at the blank two-dimensional page or yeah. or just the one word. It's the three dimension of the challenge, and and how do you bring that to life in a different way, or to passing in a different way? Artists must admit, and I do admit, that we're scavengers. We look at life experiences as uh, grist for the mill, uh, so to speak. How can I write a novel, or write a poem, or make a film out of this, or make a drawing out of this? In a way, that's selfish. We're looking at situations for our own personal use, but our own personal use is to use these things to create something which we then send back into the world. So in that sense, we're intermediaries between the event and the ultimate effect it might produce in the world. While we're going through it, we're not constantly uh, taking notes with our tape recorders or with our pencils. We are recording memories, which we will later uh, access and use and I, I guess by doing that, we're kind of riding beside ourselves as we go along uh, something that is not pleasant. But I, I actually think that we're thinking ahead and we're thinking, yeah. hey, something may come of this. And I think that's the way my, my father, our father, uh, felt as well that, as they say, a teaching moment, not in the sense of pedagogy, but just intent in terms of a collective life experience which we would not otherwise have had, which is not different from what the great mass of humanity has. We're not the only ones in this boat, but we may be, by dint of our creative bent, more able to assimilate and process it and distill it and present it to the world. And there is some saving grace in that. So you mentioned the word selfish, which I thought was a rather interesting word to put into this conversation. I'm wondering, I'm trying to find the right words myself right now, because we think about caregivers as not being selfish, to be the ones who are, are selfless and giving for the one who needs the help. Right. But is that true from the perspective of a caregiver? I mean, it's painful to watch a parent or somebody that you love go through this. And your dad couldn't stop it. There's nothing he could do, although I did hear about somebody doing some stem cell research. It was really fascinating mm -hmm. in Costa Rica the other day, but that's for another show. <laughs> do you think that, that there is a selfish component that we need to grasp as caregivers and even as parents who may have dementia to make the process a little easier in going through? Well, I think selfish, I did use the word. It's a bit of a loaded word. Yeah. It's a pejorative. I would say maybe modify that and say a self-awareness, which is to say not to ignore that one may feel very stressed to the point of being burned out, 
if one is so selfless as so as to deny that, then you're not going to recognize it in yourself and you're not going to do anything about it and it'll just get worse. I think that in accepting that awareness, one may feel initially a twinge of selfish guilt. Like, who am I to worry about myself when I'm so worried about this other person who, ironically enough, doesn't seem as worried about himself as I do? So it goes round and round. I strive to insert a little levity into these situations so that grief doesn't become so overwhelming and so heavy and so leaden. My father was a great one. He was a great wit. He was a poet himself. And one of the things we did together, we would make up limericks. Uh, I would write a line. (laughs) Good ones or dirty ones? (laughs) (laughs) With my father... Well, that's another. When, when, uh, when people seem to progress into Alzheimer's, sometimes the uh, the dirty minds emerge that you didn't even know were there. Not so much with my father. I've... My mom had no filter. One day, I'll share this just as a side, is that my husband came down with me, and the two of them used to always banter back and forth all the time. And she looked at him, and she says, I don't know who you are, but I know I don't like you. <laughs> and we all broke up in laughter because, uh, oh, there, that's mom. It, you know, that dementia didn't hide that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Honesty will. I love it, right? Know. I mean, there's some things to be celebrated about this as well. So we're talking about limericks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, limericks, I, I would write a line. I would tell him what the last uh, rhyme uh, was of the line. I wouldn't tell him the whole line. And I'd fold that under a piece of paper, and he'd write the next line with an appropriate rhyme, and we'd go through the five lines and see what we came up with. Kind of a Mad Libs of limerick creation. So he he loved uh, poetry especially. He he was not actually uh, professionally an artist by any stretch. He, He played the violin. He played the piano. Amateur. He was an amateur at both, but he he enjoyed them. He loved music. And he would, I remember on his 60th birthday party, he threw himself a big party, rented one of those tents for outdoors uh, barbecue, and he requested that every guest bring a poetry book uh, with a selection of one or two or three of their favorite poems. And so after dinner, we all sat around and read our favorite poems. And actually, the poem that is in my Remembrance of Things Present is one of his favorites. It's by Lee Hunt. And it's a very touching meditation on aging and lost opportunities and uh, passions of yesterday that are still sweet today. And so poetry was a great solace to him. He was not so much a poet as an appreciator and lover of poetry. I I like to think that I do both. (laughs) (laughs) And then when I read my own, I'm especially... Why not be impressed with yourself? (laughs) You know, what I thought was interesting in the book that I hadn't necessarily thought about was how you broke apart the five stages of grief. So the shock that sort of happens, shock and and denial, really, of hearing about your dad. Mm -hmm. And he was very pragmatic about how he shared this information with you and seemed rather in control from the conversation that you shared. Which I guess when you're given a sentence like that, because it's the only thing I, only way I can describe it from the patient side or your parent side, is that there's not much I can do about it. Let's, as the old saying is, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and make the best of the same the situation. Yeah. But then there's there's the anger part, and 
did you find that there was a stage that everybody was angry and just didn't know how to deal with uh, that? Yeah, yeah. And what did you do to work through that? Well, um, I will say that the five stages of grief, the Kubler-Ross scheme, it may be a little too neat and pat for some people, maybe even to me, but as a writer... When I'm creating anything, I am very big on an overview and a segmentation into sections so that I can deal with sections rather than the overall. If I'm writing a play, I'm thinking of Act 1 or actually just scene 1 of Act 1. If I'm writing a novel, I'm, I'm thinking of um, Part 1, chapters. Part, chapters, and then and chapters within larger parts. And retrospectively, it wasn't while we were going through this that I thought of the five stages of grief. But uh, someone asked me to write something about Alzheimer's for a fundraiser. This is like a couple of years after my father died. Mm -hmm. And she said, uh, I, I won't tell you what you should write. Write anything you like. So um, I, I tried prose and it didn't seem to uh, flow. And then I started to write in rhymed couplets and it did flow. So just wondering if just the, uh, this neat little package, and like you said, it's it's written out for us and we're all fairly familiar with those stages or just packaging things. Do you think that makes the care process easier or does it give us the box to work within so we can be more creative in, in the problem solving process? Well, I, I do think it helps in the experience in that you can look at portions of the experience as opposed to the whole overwhelming mass of experience. If I can say, oh, my wishful thought is that this hadn't happened. And you realize it had happened and you can't change that. So if you just look at it from that uh, angle and within those limits, you can deal with it. Oh, I see what's happening here. And then the anger. Now I'm angry. Well, that's not unusual. That's perfectly normal. What am I angry at? Has anybody done me wrong? Is this cruel fate? And if so, who assigned me this fate. Why me? And, right? and it's not happening. It's yeah, not happening me? to exactly. us, technically. It's happening to yeah. the person that yeah, we're caring exactly. for. Which, yeah, why me? Which is a bit of the selfish component, I think, when you, you know, it's like, why is it me? It's That's it's right. not me. Yeah. And so, you know, they're in extreme, uh, extreme version of that is survivor's guilt. When yeah. someone, uh, two people are in a terrible accident, say one dies and the other does not, and the other one feels guilty for having survived. There is a certain amount of that too. And then there's the bargaining with the situation, trying to make the best of it, making concessions, taking thing what you can from it and giving up certain things and, and doing all of that. But with Alzheimer's, there's no bargaining with it. You realize, yeah. you know, this is a, a fool's bargain. And then eventually, hey, this is, you know, we made our bed and we got to sleep in it. So there's an acceptance at the end. So when I looked, when I wrote the poem, I was looking at a way uh, to, to structure it and um, casting about, and I came upon the Kubler-Ross, which I'd heard of. Hey, this, this does reflect, really, the stages that I went through. Maybe not quite as neat and clean, but it provided a nice structure uh, and seal it all up with that acceptance. And uh, with the implication, if not the explicit statement, that my father did likewise went through those same stages from his point of view as the person experiencing Alzheimer's. 
Could you share that a little bit? Because caregivers, we're going through this. And and like I said, yeah, there is a bit of a selfish component to think that it's, you know, we're the ones going through it when it's actually our parent or the person we're taking care of that's physically going through this. But we're actually going together as a partner or team, whether you've got siblings or not. It's it's a unit that's working together. How did what you experienced actually help your dad through this process of, you know, I'll say acceptance because he had no choice, I guess, ultimately in the Mm -hmm. end. But there were some moments of joy that you guys had together that were pretty special and pulling those out were creative in your own way. Uh, That is true. He got great pleasure uh, from our visits, our our physical visits to, to where he was living. And sometimes, especially in the latter stages, we would arrive and find him almost semi-conscious in a wheelchair, huh. literally just just sitting there with his jaw slack and his eyes half-lidded. Oh. And we would start to talk to him, and he'd bound back into being himself. And there simply was not enough stimulation. I know that these care facilities vary in quality. I think this was a very good one. But there's only so much that within that situation, the people, the residents there can be stimulated. That goes anywhere from, well, if you're home, got one-on-one yeah. care, and, but still not all the time. But uh, many facilities have as many as 10 residents, if, if not 20 in some cases, to yeah. one caregiver. Yeah. So you think, you know, in the course of an hour, if you've got, or a course of a day, if they're spending an hour with somebody, which can happen depending upon the situation, yeah. you've only got one hour mm-hmm. at most yeah. in the course of 24 hours with somebody so there's no outside stimulation hardly ever interesting um our son our son gabriel who is he he went to uh graduate school at the university of minnesota got his master's in clinical social work and was a social worker and i say was in the past tense because he burned out in that job and is now doing something else but he was a very creative social worker and one of the periods during his work experience he was a field officer, and he would go out to these care facilities, and his social working job was to talk to them, not necessarily to diagnose them or to prescribe anything, but simply to get them talking, to get them thinking, to get them thinking forward and backward and every other which way. And very often he would find them sitting in front of a television, which was never turned off during the hour, and he would end yep. up sitting watching, uh, you know, the Golden Girls or whatever was was playing there for a full hour. He'd clock out and he'd be paid and he'd go on to the next one. But it was um, my father was actually in, in the banking business. He was a um, an estate officer. He would draw business for the bank uh, for people who needed estate planning. And then he would go out and uh, help these people see through the thicket of their financial problems. And I often describe his mode of work as he was a pastoral counselor. He was, uh, he was going out there like a, a priest and um, making people, people feel better and seeing their way clear toward a, a better future. And our son, Gabriel, uh, was that for a period of years as a social worker. He would simply infusing a little life interest and stimulation into these people's lives for however long that would hold within them because when he would go back they'd be in their previous state anyway there's that's not to discount 
the importance of even an hour during uh, out of 24 being stimulated. So if I write a book of poetry or, or, or a novel and someone reads it and it takes them three hours or three weeks and they forget about it after that, that's fine. What would you recommend to somebody who is a caregiver and maybe even as somebody who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia early on and their family to figure out maybe a kinder, gentler way to infuse some extra color or life or creativity to make that whole process a little gentler on the physical care, but also the emotional care that we all have to worry about ourselves. Well, you can go into it thinking, okay, I will try X, Y, Z. We will play bingo, then we will do a crossword, then we'll look at the old college yearbook and see what, what clicks, what takes. What I found myself doing is just being open to the moment. And in one particular instance, which is really absolutely pivotal, we were sitting in our father's apartment, and uh, we weren't talking at the moment. And he looked to his right and he saw his old harmonica that he had played as a teenager. And it was a beautiful old vintage harmonica. And he picked it up and I thought, oh, this is going to be embarrassing. This is really going to be awkward. <laughs> What's go- what are we going to hear? He picked it up and he started to play. And by golly, he played note perfectly and with great gusto the song The Old Oaken Bucket. And I knew the song mm-hmm. and I sang along with him. Suddenly, we were in this present tense moment of almost an eternal kind of present tense moment, which had nothing to do with the past. It had nothing to do with it. Well, it had to do with the past and and future, but wasn't bound to any regrets in the past or fears for the future. It was simply the joy in the present. And it was through the medium medium of music. And he was uh, blowing his harmonica and I was singing. And that was such a pivot in our experience with him uh, of, of his journey through Alzheimer's. Music, they say, really is a, a fabulous tool for people who have dementia or Alzheimer's. My mom used to sing as a young child, a young woman, and she, the, one of our aides would bring in a little speaker and hook her phone up to mm-hmm. it and play all the old tunes from their era. Oh, and mom yeah. would belt out... <laughs> Songs like, yes, it's the moon in the sky with the, yeah, da, da, da. it's amore, she would sing, it's amore. And darn if she didn't know all the words, yeah. you know, yeah. every single one. And dad didn't know the words anyway, did haven't been mentioned, but he'd always yell, amore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I agree with you. I think we forget that sometimes, well, I, let me back up. We, we are so in, in the moment of taking care of what needs to be done mm-hmm. that I think too often we forget just to stop and, as you said, be in the moment of whatever that is and just focus on being still and listening to what's happening. Yeah. And to be there for them, mm-hmm. not as a caregiver, but yeah. as an adult child, as a, as a young child, as somebody who loves them. Yeah. If nothing else, bring joy to that one moment for them. But also for me, those stories and hearing your stories makes the memory of what was, even though they're not here, just as beautiful and gentle. So that that, that part of grief after they're gone is not so crinkly, I'll call it, yeah, you know, no. so brittle. The, the curtain isn't all the way down. In fact, when I do present this poem in, it, in its TEDx uh, format, 18-minute TEDx format, I actually feel that I'm speaking 
in the manner of my father. I'm making gestures. So channeling it, yeah, right? Channeling kind of. would be the word. That's the way I feel yeah. at times. So it's, uh, you know, it's uh, in a way it's mystical or it's fanciful or it's fictional or whatever it is. But whatever, you know, whatever gets you through the day and the night is worthwhile. If my father isn't there saying, you know, plotting in the audience, he's applauding in my mind. And Look for the magic uh, as well as the moment, that's, I guess. That's is... right. That's right. You know, instead of initially, you know, we just got the diagnosis. I thought, oh, I and my sisters are going to be racing ahead of him in time, leaving him stranded way back there in this no man's land of forgetfulness. And this harmonica incident yanked me back from those, kind, from those kinds of thoughts. And it didn't yank him anywhere. He was already there, but it pulled me back to be with him in that space, that kind of uh, lyrical middle ground. Oh, that's a beautiful moment without sounding mushy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yet, like I said, you know, we're so used to being thrown into being the process of clinicians ourselves uh-huh. without the MD that we forget that we ourselves have a soft spot and we can't stop it. But maybe, maybe there's a little bit more room for creativity and a little bit more softness in the process. We don't always have to be doctor daughter or yeah. you know, doctor son or the boss of, of everything that's happening of their lives and, yeah. and manage them my before mo- the process happens. My right? mother my mother did not have dementia. She had a d- diminishing ability to walk. Her lower extremity were neurologically somehow compromised. My sisters and I cared for her in this in whatever way she needed in uh, for actually longer than we did with my father. I found that the process of doing that would, again, uh, provoke those feelings like, uh, again, why is me, as we, as we were saying, why me, why me? I, I like to think, my wife and I are very concerned that as we get older, that we not burden our children with uh, a progressive uh, period of increasing care. We, we, we look forward to being cared for, but we don't want to feel uh, a burden to them, an obligation to them. Both of my parents were, I, I have to be honest, there, it was a burden, but it's one we, uh, my sisters and I, shouldered, if, if not always gladly, always willingly, and, and with the greatest and, you know, compassion and passion for our father. But we want to spare, my wife and I, our children, with too much of that. We just want it to be, you know, they can come and visit us, we'll have fun, but we don't want them to be our 24-7 physical and intellectual and emotional caregivers. And um, they understand that. And uh, I think we're all on the same page. And I, I think it'll probably work out. You bring a good point in that so many of us do not want to be a burden. And I use the term burden fairly lightly and broadly to those that in our family. But my parents did the same thing. They told my sister and I they didn't want to be a burden, went into a care facility. They had long-term care, but even still, still takes somebody who is going to be responsible for administering that to making sure that you're safe. So there's a role and responsibility that everybody has to have. And, and I'm not saying this to you, but I'm just saying it in general to everybody out there that's listening that Long-term care insurance is a great product to have. It's only good if you have somebody who can manage and administer it mm-hmm. so that it is used properly. And know that just because you have this insurance doesn't mean that your responsibility as a caregiver, an adult of a parent, aging parent who has this, is not there. Mm-hmm. So that's just sort of a, a caveat. Yeah. But I admire 
admire you for having that conversation. And unfortunately, I think too many families do not have those conversations to say what's going to happen later on in, in life. And yeah. sometimes we do have to be a little analytic and less creative yeah. in the process. Well, you know, a little, um, my, my wife and I have this conversation in regard to ourselves. I don't think she'd mind if if I reveal that we have differing views on how we would like it to go, she is for preparing for assisted living. Mm -hmm. And I, whether simply because I don't want to admit it, that it may come to that or whatever, or I simply really just want to stay in my own home and sleep in my own bed, I would rather not one, think about it, and two, prepare for it. My father... Well, you're actually like 80% of the population who wants to stay at home. So there you are. You're in the majority. (laughs) Your your wife's the SOL person. (laughs) Uh, I think she probably has the right angle on this, and I probably will come around to her. But at the moment, we're feeling pretty good. Still love to ski, and I just went to uh, auto racing school, a three-day boot camp in uh, Formula racing cars. So uh, trying to stay... Stay feeling young and thinking young. Stay out of that care facility at yeah. all costs and put wheels on it, right? <laughs> well, thank you, Peter. This has been terrific. Are there any sort of last comments that you think that people, words of wisdom that we should know about well, taking, taking yeah. a little different approach to all of this? Well, I think I'll just go back to something I said before. Combine two thoughts, guilt and humor. If you laugh, yeah. it's fine. Don't feel guilty about it. It's the best medicine. And uh, the person with the experience who's experiencing dementia or whatever can laugh and you can laugh and you can, you know, as they say, are you laughing with me or laughing at me? doesn't make any difference. It's laughter. (laughs) Laughter is laughter and it's purgative. It's cathartic and it's the best medicine going. As my husband says, every day on this side of the grass is a good day. That's a good one. That's a good one. (laughs) On that note, thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate it. And for all of you who are listening, please, if you like this show, the best gift, and with a little bit of humor, is to share it with friends and family because we're in this together and you may not think so. However, we are and there's a lot more ahead and there are a lot more good days ahead and we'd like to do them with you. So take care. Have a great day. We'll see you soon. Or as I like to say, we'll hear you soon because we're a podcast. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity, LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright, Caremanity, LLC.